And then the flip side of it, organizations are now looking at it going, well, um, you know, we had a really great culture beforehand, but that was an, probably an accidental culture because it was just because we had a whole of people in a room. We weren't really purposeful about what we were doing there. And now when we're working in a distributed way, we need to be a lot more purposeful in terms of how we connect our people together and how we share knowledge and how we instill values and recognize behaviors and all that other kind of stuff that really builds the culture of the organization more than just the, what's on the poster on the wall. Hello and welcome to Let's Talk About EX, the podcast that discusses workplace culture, experience, well-being and more. I'm your host, Ryan McGrory, the founder of Exona, and I'm joined on this episode by Paul Woods, the founder of a company called Adopt and Embrace. As well as a founder, he's a very successful business leader and author, and has also worked alongside some amazing organisations to help them understand and get the best value from their workplace technologies. As you can imagine, he's had a very busy and interesting few years as he supported a heap of organizations to transition their workforce to a remote or hybrid model. But also, he's been at the forefront of emerging workplace tech trends of hybrid work for a number of years, whilst also supporting and building digital literacy and digital confidence for leaders in all sorts of sized organizations. It was great having Paul on to discuss this, to learn from him, and also hear how his life is going since his company was acquired by Rapid Circle last year. Now, if you're looking at your workplace technologies or your remote or hybrid work strategies, then you'll likely learn a lot from this interview. Enjoy. Paul, how are you? Very well, Ryan. How are you? I'm very well, very well. Thanks. Thanks for joining us. Uh, on an unusually sunny day in uh, Queensland, uh, in Brisbane. It's been been like a month month since I've seen the sun. Uh, It's like that. (laughs) I don't usually say that up here. Uh, But yeah, yeah, thanks for joining us. I'm really excited. Um, You've you've been working with Adopt and Embrace for a while now, but I wanted to start off by by asking, who are Adopt and Embrace and and what sort of work do you guys do? Yeah, yeah. So uh, Adopt and Embrace is a company that I founded back in 2015. and uh, basically with the mission of making sure that people weren't a victim of technology. Uh, and, uh, and I think everyone would be familiar with this story where we work in an organization, whether it's a small, medium or large business, and we have so much choice and so much overwhelm of the technology that we have at our fingertips to get our work done. Uh, and that sometimes is by design. And sometimes I'd say most of the time it isn't by design. It's just the, the you know, nat- natural inertia of an organization, the technology they bring into the business they never generally get rid of the old stuff or you know, give some really solid guidance in terms of how you use all these great stuff to apply it into your business processes or your work practices or things like that. So Adopt and Embrace is really focused on just trying to bridge that gap between all the great tools that you've got uh, at your fingertips in, in the workplace and the stuff that you need to do to get your job done. But doing it in a way that you know made sure that you could achieve your professional goals of hitting your KPIs and all that kind of stuff, but also your personal goals as well of getting your lunch break back and getting out of the office on time. Like all those things that we used to do before COVID when we went to an office and and that kind of thing. So I started started in 2015 uh, and then uh, built built up that business here in Australia, in New Zealand, basically working with um, organisations to help them navigate. Um, you know these emerging topics back then, like you know what if we worked more flexibly. And how would we use technology to do that? Or, you know, what if we, what if we allowed people to work from home every now and then? Or if, what if we introduced laptops? What impact would that have? You know, or, you know, video conferencing. We can't get anyone to use video conferencing. What, what kind of things would you do to help us get people to use video conferencing? And then, then in, uh, when, when was it February or March 2020, um, 
the world completely changed and uh, we basically, we, we're that company that helped organisations navigate COVID um, and how to transition their workforces from, um, you know, being traditionally in the office to completely distributed within a three or four week period. And that, that brute force introduction of flexible work that we all saw because of um, the pandemic. Um, so we, we've done quite a lot of work in terms of, you know, um, you know, emerging terms or trends in this space, like hybrid work or distributed work and things like that, making that sustainable, but then um, focus on digital literacy, digital fluency, you know, helping leaders be more confident with digital technology to you know, create really great experiences for their employees as well. And then the last bit of that story is that um, in July of last year, we actually got acquired. Um, which is a whole other story we could talk about um, being acquired during a pandemic where you, you'd never had the opportunity to meet the people that you're acquiring face to face until the deal was done. Yeah, well, wow. a lot of video conference and things like that. But uh, so, so now working for a company called Rapid Circle, but leading the Adopt and Embrace team there um, and taking this story globally outside of Australia to, to the rest of the world as well. Brilliant, excellent, and what a story! Uh, uh, and the story continues. I see that you're that you're speaking in Copenhagen soon. Tell us a bit about that. Yeah, yeah. So uh, European, uh, very much a technical conference, European SharePoint uh, conference uh, happens every year. So the first time they've had it in person for the last three years now. Uh, but I'll be doing a, a, a hybrid work masterclass over there. Well, that's what they want to call it, hybrid work masterclass. I hate that kind of phrase, phraseology. It's just a you know, workshop to you know, sit down with people and help them you know, navigate through all the research we know about hybrid work and distributed work. Because like, this isn't a new thing. Like we've been doing work in a distributed way for a very long time before COVID came along. Just no one really cared about it or thought about it too much. So there's evidence from this research in the 70s and 80s and 90s and, and into today that you know, it can help shape what a really great hybrid work policy looks like to make it sustainable, set the right conditions in the context for um, you know, uh, really, great, really great employee experience when you're you know, working across locations and across time zones and things like that. So yeah, we'll be running a, a full day workshop there to, to go through that. Um, and the, we will be the only Australian there. So I'll be the guy with the Australian accent um, uh, out of the thousands of people that are there. So it'll be interesting. <laughs> My first time in Copenhagen too. So I'm looking forward to it. Fantastic. Excellent. Go, go and represent. Are you going to exactly. wrap, your, wrap yourself up in an Aussie flag and wear the old oh. Bob, Bob Hawk Australian suit blazer? I'll, I'll get uh, caught at customs with uh, too many Tim Tams, I'm sure. <laughs> Fantastic. You mentioned before about, you know, during COVID, obviously helping people with, um, helping organisations with their transition. Um, but it seems like now we're in another transition phase, perhaps some of yeah. the same challenges that were before, you know, in terms of helping teams become more flexible or helping them survive in a flexible atmosphere. What, what sort of transition do you think that we're in right now and, and, and how are you helping teams out with that? Yeah, I, th I think you've nailed it. There's definitely been some really distinct phases of what we're seeing throughout the the pandemic and now into call it recovery and in inverted commas um, where we're going now. So um, in, in the lead up to COVID, um, when we saw like the first emerging signs of COVID, there was organizations that were very proactive and kind of saw this risk coming and got on got on top of it. I'd say maybe 2% of organizations maybe were kind of in that boat. And um, they were the ones that were shutting down their offices early. They were you know, equipping people, like like even within our organisation, similar kind of thing where we just cannibalise the office. Like take take monitors, take whatever you need. We know that there's going to be a lockdown in a few weeks' time. Let's get ahead of it, get settled, so we can you know, be be in a good position. Um, and then, uh, so let's call that the pre phase, where some some people got a little bit ahead of it. Then we had the, the the widespread lockdowns and things like that. And I like to call that the brute force phase. So um, everyone at the same time had the exact same experience, which was 
we've been thrown in the deep end and now we need to you know, work at a distance from each other, but we're all in a similar boat, right? So I'm at home, you're at home, our colleagues at home, my manager's at home, like no one's trying to go into the office or anything like that. It's very much a consistent experience for everyone. Um, and from a change management point of view, that was probably the most effective change management that I've ever seen in my life. And it has nothing to do with change managers, it all has to do with here's a really compelling event slash reason that we need to do that, which is our business will not survive if we don't do it, or we can't like, we can't deliver what we need to do for our customers moving forward if we don't do this. And there's a legal requirement for us now to do it. So change is pretty easy when you've got those conditions to, to get people to change behavior and things like that, right? We might not have liked it, but you know, we, we still got that change to occur. And I, th I think that's the that's the biggest challenge we have now going into this recovery is that two things have changed. First of all, we don't have that compelling reason, that mandate to change again um, in a lot of organizations. And then the other challenge we have is we don't have that consistency anymore, any, anymore of everyone being at home. So now we have a bit more choice coming into it. And that choice is on a few different levels, individual choice in terms of whether I'm working at home today or in the office tomorrow and, and that kind of thing choice of a leader in terms of how I want to run my team and how do I engage and how we communicate as a team. And then as an organization, are we going to, you know, mandate that people come back three days a week or two days a week or you know, five days a week or that kind of thing. So now there's a lot more um, permutations of what's possible. And I think that's the biggest challenge we've got moving forward with hybrid work and that experience as an employee is that no one's really figured out what it, what is the best model for us as an organization or us as a team or us as an individual um, we're still trying to navigate all that stuff and there's no hard and fast lockdown to drive us to a choice everyone's still trying to make those choices all at once um, and I think for the next 12 18 months a lot of us are still going to try and you know take baby steps and try and explore and figure this out and see what works for us and I think some of us have learned during the pandemic that you know, there are some things that are really really beneficial of working in a distributed way you know, you no longer have to commute for 20 minutes, 30 minutes an hour each way every day to get to work or you know, engage in work. Um, and that means I can do more exercise at home or I can engage with my family a bit more, you know, be home and cook dinner, all those kinds of things that, you know, you struggled with and you probably felt guilty about beforehand, but, you know, it's just part of, you know, being a full-time employee and getting your work done, right? Um, you know, so, so I think there, there's, um, I, th I think the, the, ch the challenge is that it's that overwhelming complexity um, understanding the benefits for us as individuals. And the flip side of it, organizations are now looking at it going, well, um, you know, we had a really great culture beforehand, but that was an, probably an accidental culture because it was just because we had a whole of people in a room and we weren't really purposeful about what we were doing there. And now when we're working in a distributed way, we need to be a lot more purposeful in terms of how we connect our people together and how we share knowledge, and how we instill values and recognize behaviors and all that other kind of stuff that really builds the culture of the organization more than just the, what's on the poster on the wall. Um, and that's really challenging for a lot of leaders because they don't know how to navigate that or manage that because they haven't really had to think about that before. So I think there's, you know, going back to your original question about these phases, we're going into a phase now where there's a whole lot of people that are faking it till they make it um, to nav navigate this stuff. And um, I think that the best organizations at this would be the ones that kind of, um, you know, listen, guide, but don't dictate how this is going to play out, put some, maybe some constraints along the sides in terms of what you need to do, but really let, let the workforce kind of navigate it themselves and trying to co-create what this future looks like together. And I think a lot of people have felt this. So, so I think, I think what you've said is going to resonate with many people because they've, they haven't just seen it. They haven't just observed it, but they've felt it, they've experienced it themselves. 
Um, so I'm thinking there, you know, like the 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 um, I would I would I would imagine when you go into an organization and you're working with people, you would spin out a lot of leaders because maybe what their expectation is when you arrive is that you're going to help them deploy or implement something, you know, software or a digital solution. But what you're actually asking is for people to get their key decisions around culture and around purposely um, uh, yeah. thinking through their experience. How do, how do you... How does that happen? How do you manage it? And actually, do you spin people out often? Yeah, oh, sometimes, sometimes. Uh, I'd say we're not perfect at it. Um, but I think what we recognize is that technology is not the only piece of the puzzle to do this. So again, when, when, when COVID hit, everyone's like, oh, we need, we need Zoom, we need Teams, we need you know, Facebook Workplace, we need Yammer, we need these tools to work. And there's a lot of focus on the technology side of it. And technology is important, don't get me wrong. You need the, to be able to do it in an easy way, a seamless way. Technology can do a lot to help us get there. Um, but what people weren't focusing on is the other side of the coin, which is, so how, how do we want to work together as a team? How do we want to communicate with each other? How do we want to engage with that? How are we going to, um, and what expectations are we placing on each other in terms of how we work in this space? And um, now, throughout this journey, almost every situation that we look at, there's these, these two sides of this, which is there's a technology angle that you can work with. And then there's the, the social or the people side of it, socio side of it. And um, again, it's one of those things where we've known about this for a long time. Like this is, this, there's research going back to the 1950s in this area called socio-technical systems, which um, is really about the, you know, recognizing that um, you, know, you might improve technology like 10 times in a space, so you know, in a coal mine, as an example, you might completely automate a coal mine. Um, but unless you're focusing on improving the employee experience or the way that those teams engage with each other or the, the meaningfulness of their work and other bits and pieces like that, um, you'll probably find productivity actually goes backwards in that coal mine, even though on paper it should be a lot higher because that new technology is in place. So there's basically this fundamental rule that if we're going to optimize technology, uh, we need to try and optimize that people or social thing in parallel to that at the same time, this idea of dual optimization. Uh, and likewise, if you're focusing on improving you know, culture, employee experience from a policy and people side of things, unless you're optimizing the technology comes with it, again, you're going to see the same challenges that you see. Um, you know, maybe it, all, all the stuff that should have happened on paper because a great culture program kind of fall down because there's no enabling technology there to operationalize it or make it real or, or make it um, come together, right? So, um, so we have this mindset, we need to be optimizing both those things at the same time. If we're working with a technology team, hardly anyone in a technology team understands that. They, they look at it and see it as a, as a, you know, this is a technology project or a digital project and that's what's going to lead us to where we need to get to. Um, if we're engaging via HR or internal comms, they're more likely to understand it and get it. So we're probably not flipping out as many people that are you know, traditional business roles as opposed to um, those, in, those in technology roles. But I think fundamentally, irrespective of where you are in an organization, um, the real flip out for us, and like, it makes sense when I say it out loud, but it still surprised me to this day, is just how many, how many people just aren't confident when it comes to this stuff. Um, and I think it's because we've all been thrown in the deep end, particularly now we've all been thrown in the deep end, We've all been throwing technology to kind of work through this. We're still trying to figure out how we want to run our teams and how we want to engage at work and what work means for us and all this kind of stuff. And when we get people one-on-one, -on -one, it's a very open and honest conversation, which is just, I'm not quite sure. I'm overwhelmed. I, I don't know what my next step should be. So quite a lot of the work we're doing is just trying to help people make those first few steps to get the momentum going 
to be more confident with the technology or be more confident in terms of how they run that team meeting on, on teams or how they you know, share that document to kind of bring together that project to get that thing done that they're trying to get done. It's really about how do we how do we start building momentum? And if we can do that by optimizing both the technology and the and the people side of things, that's that's the best way to go about it. And I think another thing as well is that most people in organizations, particularly in HR, have maybe had a poor or a bad experience implementing technology in the past. Oh, everyone has. Yeah. Every everyone has, exactly. Yeah. Um uh, so what do you think it is that people have done in the past? And what could they and what could they do to avoid mistakes in a new venture, particularly if it's impacting their confidence around around any sort of implementation? Uh, this is where the IT industry has shot themselves in the foot so many times uh, in the past um, that they haven't done themselves any favours. Um, well, let's see, you look at a big complex project, or even simple projects, right, where you might roll, roll out some technology, and they'll invest. Um, you know, hundreds of thousands of millions of dollars on technology and maybe the same again on people to architect the technology and configure the technology and get the technology perfect. Um, and then they'll think, well, okay, now we've finished the project. Now we've got to get people to use it and treat it as an afterthought. So how do we, how do we then get people to use it? And by then they've run out of money. They've run out of time. It's a very fast, quick activity to, to try and launch it to workforce and introduce it to a workforce. And, um, and that's where we end up with you know, situations that we have in organizations where it's, it's a poor experience because you've got a new ERP system that's just foisted on you and you've got a one hour training session then you're expected to undo how you've done things for the last 20 years and then magically be doing it in a different way, right? Um, so change management's really been lacking organizational change management is really lacking um, from a technology project point of view. So I, I think a lot of organizations are getting better at that now. I think custom, like our customers, like the organizations in, in the general world are getting better at recognizing that's important. Um, you just can't, again, it comes back to that dual optimization thing, right? You just can't optimize the technology without thinking about how this impacts the workforce and, the, and how it can improve the experience for us or improve the outcomes we get, uh, help us deliver better outcomes for our customers and that kind of thing. So um, I, th I think it, I think it's a challenge. I think I think the ways to avoid it is to have a really um, a really collaborative conversation across you know those silos that exist within organisations, um, and recognising you know, what success looks like is not deploying a technology, and success is not how many people are using a technology. Success is seeing our ENPS score going up, or it's delivering you know, you know more more pallets through our warehouse faster. Um, to get our stuff out to customers faster, um, you know, or more more sales, or whatever those business metrics are. Um, so if you can ground that work you're doing in, in things that you know the business cares about, as opposed to things that technology cares about, you can start to you know have the right mindset to avoid some of those uh, mistakes that have happened in the past. But I think that the biggest challenge that we've seen, like practically day to day, is exactly what you said: is I've had a bad experience with this at company X, or I've had a bad experience with this at company Y, and it's got nothing to do with the technology; it's got all to do with just how IT made them a victim of technology we don't want to be victims of technology like you no, said that no. at the start i was thinking that <laughs> we definitely yeah. don't want to be victims no, no. Exactly. <laughs> so um you know there's a bit of a, a kind of kind of learning journey for for a lot of hr leaders you would think you know when they're having to delve into technology in more ways than what they've what they've ever had to before but there's also a um a, a need to link um uh initiatives to actual business outcomes or to show the return on investment do you think that we're doing that better now than what we have done before or do you think there's still some way to go oh look it's challenging uh, i've been trying to grapple this with this my entire career is how do you demonstrate real return on investment on some of these initiatives that are clearly 
very geared towards qualitative outcomes as opposed to quantitative outcomes. And, yeah. and the classic example I always give it, I remember when I used to work at Microsoft a very long time ago uh, as an intern. And it was my job, actually, I'll give you the full story. Um, it was back in 2005, 2006, when um, uh, Office 2007 was about to come out. And the big change with Office 2007 was you got a, the, the new ribbon at the top of Office. So you've gone from the old menu to the new menu. That was a big change. So it was my job as a 22 or 23-year-old intern to, um, to basically convince CIOs it was a good idea that this menu is going to change the world. And you had to buy more Microsoft licensing to pay for it, essentially. And... Um, Ever since that time, where like this question of ROI keeps coming up, it's it's very difficult to mm. measure ROI on on a complex system like this or a complex technology, whether it's Office or any other technology that you're working with. Um, and and complex initiatives you might be rolling out in parallel, right? Um, because the classic the, the use the classic business case will go back always go back to we're going to save X amount of time, and that time is worth X amount of dollars, right? Um, and uh, I remember a conversation. It would have been the first conversation I had with the CFO. And uh, he said, that's great. So who should I fire to make sure we realize that came? And straight away you go, well, you're spot on, you know, because it's just, it's vanity metrics, it's vanity return on investment. It doesn't actually mean anything. Uh, it might be a productivity improvement. And yes, we could kind of, we know we're gonna be better at it, but we can't get these hard and fast dollars to say, hey, you know, we're gonna save X amount of dollars because that is basically a labor yeah, we have to save that on labor costs. And the only way to do that is either not hire more people as we grow or get rid of people in the organization, right? So there's a fundamental um, challenge there with you know having this very quant quantitatively driven time and money-based view of ROI. Um, so the way we've kind of switched to try and navigate that is to think about, well, how, how does this impact other KPIs we have in the business? So it's not necessarily a financial one, but a time-based one. But what other KPIs do we have, whether it's sales, whether it's... Um, throughput, whether it's um, you know, a risk metric or something like that. And then making sure that the work that we're doing in our programs or, you know, and the, the technology that we're, that's amplifying the impact of those programs um, really ties back to things that the CEO would care about, care about. So how is this going to help us increase revenue? How is this going to help us reduce costs? How is this going to help us uh, improve the employee experience, which is one of these key measures we have on our company dashboard and things like that. So trying to tie it back to that stuff. And that, that works a lot easier. Um, and we find that the, the best way to tie that back is you know, stop thinking like a project manager or stop thinking like a, an accountant and start thinking like a storyteller. So how do you capture the stories of success around the organization as opposed to the numbers of success? Um, and if you can go into a, a, a review with an executive and say, here's seven really great examples of how you know, Brian in the HR team has transformed the way that we do our onboarding process for our new employees. And here's a great example of Paul over in the accounts department who's transformed how we're working with debtors and collections and things like that. Here's a great example of you know, Nicole over in the... Um, in the um, in the marketing team, that's done a really great job of reimagining re our customer experience, and we've seen an like, increase of leads that come in. Um, but the richness of that story and the emotive part of that story is what sticks and kind of what people remember far beyond the metrics you might have in terms of how many people are using it or you know, what the um, you know, what the um, the option adoption metrics are and things like that. So when we think about ROIs, trying to get it to that that story, I think, and if you can get a library of those stories, um, it's not going to work every time, but 80% of the time, you're going to convince people that you know, you've know you managed to make an impact in some of the work that you're doing. Uh, and it takes a lot of the complexity out of trying to get into the nuts and bolts of how you measure success as well. And I think right now on that point, it's a fantastic time to be telling stories. The stories help mm -hmm. to connect people, but then also the, the technology that most businesses have right now is 
is ripe for great storytelling better than it's ever been you know better than sending out a company-wide email you can thoughtfully piece together your storytelling and tactics and strategies through through kind of various tools i think this thing's a cracker um, uh, or, or really good the, time. The, the good thing is they also got the opportunity to connect people with the storyteller you know or, or the person that's the, the focus of the story right like it's not just the mm. broadcast email or something like that you've got an opportunity to really create those meaningful connections mm. across the business and you know those those strong ties you have within your team are important but it's all those loose ties you can have across the rest of the organization that um, help you be more effective more engaged in your work um, and more interested um, for discovering new opportunities to progress your career all those things come from connecting to people and storytelling is an amazing way to do that oh, also breaks down the facade of the corporate robot and actually connect people mm-hmm. to other humans other other storytellers and, and achieve authenticity yeah. in, a, in a kind of genuine way um, yeah. uh, of course when it's done when it's done right that's it that's it and i think i think the the progressive organizations that we work with understand that you know that's how you build trust that's how you share knowledge that's how you how build you know the how, how do we amplify the impact of everyone together as opposed to individual contributors is what they mm-hmm. could do is um creating those connections and um, making, making sure that can happen because um otherwise you're just a group of people you're not you're not a team you're mm-hmm. not an organization you, um and particularly in in this distributed world that we're going to be living in for a long time i, I suspect if not this will be the way it is forever um, where organizations across geographies, but also potentially across time zones, because people are flexing the time of day they start to work, or they might be, you know, mm. they've gone to move to Western Australia or to the other side of the world because, you know, they can work remotely now and, and done that kind of thing. You know, the, this idea of storytelling and, and, and closely related to that, the idea of asynchronous work as well. So not having mm. to do things face to face all the time, not having to do things at, at that point in time all the time. And transitioning to a more um, thoughtful, more nuanced way of communication, where you might take the time to write things down first, and then share them with other people, and not expect mm. a response within twenty seconds in your inbox <laughs> or an instant message, right? Um, and I think they're they're the kind of fundamental things, and they're the, they're going to be the conditions for success when it comes mm. to hybrid work moving forward, making this sustainable, you know, really great positive employee experience in this distributed world moving forward. Is how, how do we you know, take the pressure down a little bit? to be present all the time, 24 hours a day and on top of things. How do we um, encourage people to turn off from work and not to sit there and you know, doom scrolling through their email or uh, keep checking for their messages at night when they're watching TV and things like that? How do you get people to disconnect and not and, and kind of move away from this um, this pressure, this expectation that no one's really set, but everyone's just assumed that we need to be responsive all the time. Um, like immediately to the, these kinds of things and if we can get can make that kind of fundamental shift as we're reframing what work looks like for us moving forward i think that's going to set us a lot, lot up for success but also take a lot of the pressure off leaders take a lot of the pressure off team members that are struggling with all the other crap that's going on in their lives um you know we can make work the place that might be the escape for some of that as well i think so too and i think i think there's a tension point right now naturally that's occurring um where the, there's the need for well-being and there's a demand for well-being and work-life balance that's been that's been growing in line with a whole heap of other complexities. And I think purposely, when technology is as decided upon and solutions are are implemented, they're usually to make things easier. Um, but I think there's something there. There's some unhealthy tension, and that they've made made life a little more complex for people because of the decisions yeah. that we've made in in and around them. Um, so I think I think there has to be a solution. Some people are, are arriving at it, 
others will be slow to follow, but hopefully it's going going in the right direction. If, if there's one thing I could recommend, I, I did research a few years ago with QUT as part of my master's around distributed work and work-life balance and things like that. And um, you know, so, some of the, there's probably two or three things that come out of that that be like tips you could kind of you know, take away from this that might mm. help you as an individual, whoever's listening to this, kind of manage these kinds of things. Um, you know, in, in the research from like over the well and truly before COVID, we knew there's you know, managing work-life borders was really difficult. And there's kind of three different borders you have to navigate. There's a physical border, which is, you know, I'm in the office or I'm not in the office. There's a temporal border. I'm starting my day, work day early or I'm not like I'm at work or not based on the time of day. And then psychological border, which is when I'm thinking about work throughout the day. Um, and I think during COVID, we saw all three of those get absolutely, those borders absolutely obliterated because my physical border is my office that I'm in now and my bedroom is just around the corner. And I actually take my phone into the bedroom anyways and I sit there on the bed, you know, doing my emails and things like that. So like that physical board is completely gone. You know, I'll wake up in the morning to turn off my alarm on my phone at 6.30 in the morning. And the first thing I do is see the notifications about work stuff there that I start looking at straight away. So I've, I've extended my work day just by using that mobile device beside the bed. And then that's the last thing I do before I go to bed is set my alarm. And then, you know, there's notifications there for work as well. And then you know, because that you know, constant, you know, we've got an embedded computer, a wearable computer in our pocket every time that we go out, you know, there's the, we can't escape that work kind of things, right? So, um, and then, you know, balance that with, you know, in COVID, we were going from back-to-back -back Zoom calls or back-to-back -back Teams calls. We lost those natural breaks in our day. So not only are our days getting longer, they're getting more intense because we're just jamming more in. Um, so like just being able to navigate, like having the language to talk about that stuff is really important. Then recognizing that's happening and then, putting some really simple things in place to avoid that. So, you know, for example, in Outlook at the moment, you can set the default setting in Outlook. So your meetings start at five minutes past the hour or you know, five minutes past the half hour or they finish five minutes earlier. So you're stru structurally putting those breaks into your workday. Um, my favorite one is um, flight mode on your phone. If you just want to get away from everything, just turn on flight mode and then everything just stops. And you're going to have that pause for an hour, that pause for 20 minutes, whatever you need it to be. Nothing else is going to come in. Um, although now sometimes Wi-Fi still stays on if you're on flight mode, so you've got to make sure you turn off Wi-Fi as well. But um, you know, there's this practical things you can do day to day that will just help you, you just get, get that little bit more control back and it'll help, help you feel more empowered in terms of track, um, you know, impacting all the other stuff that you need to do um, throughout your workday as well. Yeah, I think, I think that's some, some great tips there. I can see how they can be helpful. Another one I'd add to that is just get your phone out of the bedroom. And, yeah, uh, that's true. Yeah, yeah. and set your alarms earlier get it out of there and try not to touch it for the first hour of your day if you can there's a really great alarm clock you can get at ikea it's like three dollars and it's it's sturdy enough you can throw it across the other side of the room if you needed to and it's not going to break but uh, uh and it's one of those really annoying 1980s like casio watch kind of bing, 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 bing kind of alarm so it'll, uh, it'll definitely wake you up if you need it to but yeah that's uh yeah, my charge is on the other side of the bedroom at the moment. It's kind of it's slowly making its way out of the bedroom at the moment. But, uh, but yeah, absolutely. Um, getting getting away from the devices as much as you can when you're not in that work mode um, can make a big difference as well. Well, we've got a lot of things from you, a lot of recommendations, including the three dollar clock from IKEA. So I'm sure <laughs> I'm sure our listeners are going to be going to be rich with ideas and stuff to do. Um, Thanks heaps for coming on. I really appreciate your time. I know you're really busy. I wish you all the best of luck in everything that you do, including uh, coming up that talk in Copenhagen. So, so enjoy yeah, and you. enjoy Denmark and your travels. I will. And, uh, and uh, congratulations to you in terms of Exona and all the amazing work that uh, and the journey that you're on. So I think it's incredible. I think the, 
one of the best things about COVID and is that people have kind of really thought hard about you know, what do I want to be and the legacy I want to leave and all that kind of stuff. And I think you're, you're doing some great work there. So keep it up. No, I appreciate that. Thank you very much. No worries. Hope you picked up a few tips and ideas from this episode. You can find Paul on LinkedIn if you'd like to connect and learn a little bit more. Now that's the end of the episode, so thanks for listening. If you're looking for more content, resources, or ideas on workplace culture, engagement, or experience, then reach out to us at Exona. See you next time. Bye-bye.